to 8 o'clock. Good morning. This is Northern Light for Tuesday, January 10th. I'm Monica Sandreski. And I'm Todd Moe. Climate change means there's less snow and warmer winters to come. We'll visit the Old Forge area where the recent winter thaw has affected snowmobile tourism. Ground's not frozen. It's melting. And what little base we have, hopefully be preserved somewhat with the cold temperatures coming in, but without any new snow, it's just not going to help us. Opposition to Governor Kathy Hochul's choice for chief judge is growing, and some lawmakers say she should withdraw the name of Hector LaSalle and pick someone else instead. The Court of Appeals is simply too important to be led by someone who is not wholly committed to defending the rights of women and workers, especially the most marginalized. Also, this month marks the 25th anniversary of the ice storm. NCPR station manager Mitch Tyke remembers covering the storm as a reporter. And astronomer Eileen O'Donohue tells us what's up in the midwinter sky. All that's coming up on Northern Light. Stick with us. Broadcast of Northern Light here on North Country Public Radio is supported by Adirondack Foundation and the Adirondack Birth to Three Alliance, dedicated to providing all children the best possible start in life, adirondackbt3.org. And Long Run Wealth, an SEC-registered investment advisor in Lake Placid, providing comprehensive wealth management, retirement, and financial planning solutions, longrunwealth.com. This is Northern Light. I'm Monica Sandreski. And I'm Todd Moe. Snowmobilers in the North Country are having a tough winter. It's a multi-billion dollar industry in the U.S., but it relies on plenty of snow. Climate change means there is less snow and warmer winters to come. Emily Russell reports. Big Moose is the kind of place that has one speed limit for cars and another just for snowmobiles. This tiny community in the western Adirondacks near Old Forge is big into snowmobiling. But it's been pretty quiet here lately. We should be hearing snowmobiles, at least a couple, this time of year. That's Mark Mayer. He lives in Big Moose and loves to snowmobile. As a matter of fact, if it were snowing, you would find me out on the trails instead. Instead of here giving an interview on how bad it is. And it's been pretty bad here lately. We walk through wet slush to see one of the main trails. Ground's not frozen, it's melting. And what little base we have, hopefully, can be preserved somewhat with the cold temperatures coming in. But without any new snow, it's just not going to help us. This one still has some snow, but most have been pretty bare lately. And that is a big deal in a place that sells itself as the snowmobile capital of the East. Mayor owns the Big Moose Inn and says snowmobile tourism has changed. 20, 30 years ago, you booked your reservation a year ahead. And if it snowed, it was great. If it didn't, you were still here. Now we're in that uh, cycle of if it's rideable, we'll come. If not, we'll chase the snow. 
Mayer says he could lose up to $100,000 in a bad snow year. He usually cuts back hours and hopes to make the money back in the summer tourism season. But not everyone can do that. Sarah Shanahan runs the Big Moose Station, a bar and restaurant next to a trail really popular with snowmobilers. On an average winter day, there probably 98% of our clientele, you're far more likely to see sleds in the parking lot than we are to see cars in the parking lot. Winter is changing in the North Country, though. It's literally the writing on the wall inside the visitor center in nearby Old Forge. A big board lists the annual snowfall total since the 1960s. Up until about 2005, we were running an average of 200 inches per year. Mike Farmer is the director of tourism for the area. Now that is, has dropped, as you can see, but we are doing more with less than we've ever done before. With just 80 to 150 inches of annual snowfall, they groom in a way that makes less snow last longer. Farmer says snowmobilers know they can depend on more rideable trails in the Old Forge area well into late winter and early spring. And we've not only built our reputation on that, we've built our winter economy on that. But climate change doesn't mean just less snow. It also means warmer winters. Kurt Steger is a professor at Paul Smith College and a leading climate scientist in the Adirondacks. We're going to have more thaws in the middle of winter and longer ones. We're in the middle of one right now. And it'll take away layers that would otherwise have built up. So we're going to see less and less reliable snowpack. Europe has been struggling with the same thing in recent weeks. Ski resorts in the Alps have had to shut their doors. Some haven't even been able to make snow because it's so warm. Erica Murray owns the Old Forge hardware store. She says she's worried about what climate change could mean for her hometown. It's on our minds all the time because um, both my husband and I, we moved back here. So he's a ski coach and our kids are skiers. And that's a very huge part of why we live here, our winters. This area is adapting. It's selling itself really as a year-round destination, not only for snowmobilers, but also for hikers, bikers and paddlers. Murray says the Old Forge area has a lot to offer in every season. There is a market for people to get away from it all. It is beautiful here, no matter what, with or without snow. But there is also still plenty of winter left this year. Sarah Shanahan from the Big Moose Station says she is cautiously optimistic. It's a matter of time. Right now, the forecast doesn't look fabulous. But uh, when it does come back, my feeling is it'll come back with a vengeance. (laughs) Shanahan and others say they'll be ready for when that happens. Emily Russell, North Country Public Radio in Big Moose. University games are just a few days away. The opening ceremony is on Thursday night in Lake Placid, but hockey games start tomorrow in Canton and Potsdam. The games are the biggest world sporting event for college athletes, though this year's is turning out to be smaller than expected. Organizers originally estimated that 2,500 athletes would compete, though that's now down to about 1,500. According to the Adirondack Explorer, the games have sold about 13,000 tickets, though that too is less than what they'd hoped for. There are competitions in Lake Placid, Wilmington, Saranac Lake, North Creek, and the Canton-Potsdam area for the next week and a half. 
River restoration projects in the Adirondacks will get $2 million in funding from the federal government. The Osable River Association is hosting a ribbon-cutting ceremony for the work today in Osable Forks. The $2 million was included in the federal omnibus bill that President Biden signed into law in late December. The Osable River Association said in a press release that Congresswoman Elise Stefanik helped shepherd the funding request through. The organization has restored more than a dozen sections of the river after flooding and damage from the ice jams in the last decade. Groups opposed to Governor Kathy Hochul's choice for the next chief judge came to the Capitol on Monday to call on her to withdraw Hector LaSalle's name, saying he's too conservative to lead the courts. But as Karen DeWitt reports, Hochul shows no signs of backing down. Representatives from unions, reproductive rights groups, and criminal justice organizations stepped up the pressure on Hochul on Monday. No to LaSalle. Saying that Justice Hector LaSalle is the wrong choice for chief judge, based on some of his past opinions that they say are anti-labor, anti-due process, and anti-abortion. Senator Kristen Gonzalez is among the 14 Democratic senators who've already come out against LaSalle. The Court of Appeals is simply too important to be led by someone who is not wholly committed to defending the rights of women and workers. especially the most marginalized. The opposition among members of her own party means that Hochul does not have enough Democratic votes in the Senate for LaSalle to be confirmed without help from minority party Republicans. Deputy Senate Majority Leader Michael Gianaris also opposes the nomination. He spoke on WNYC's The Brian Lehrer Show, saying it's not just left-leaning senators who have concerns. He says moderate Democrats also have reservations. Gianaris says former Chief Judge Janet DeFee who resigned last summer, was not a good administrator of the state's vast court system, and he wants to see the court take a new direction. Not spoiling for a fight with the governor. We're anxious to work with her. Uh, We have worked well with her on so many issues uh, up to this point. But for those of us who feel so strongly that this court um, has been a problem at a time when, because of the U.S. Supreme Court, the state court systems are more important than ever, We can't in good conscience vote to confirm a nominee who we think would not improve the Court of Appeals here in New York. Senate leader Andrea Stork-Cousins was asked whether, given the opposition, Hochul should withdraw LaSalle's name from consideration and choose someone else. That would clearly uh, be easier, but um, here we are. The Senate on Monday also revealed who was added to its Judiciary Committee, increasing it from 15 to 19 members. The larger committee includes new senators who've already expressed opposition to LaSalle. That led Republicans, who are in the minority in the Senate, to accuse the Democrats of stacking the committee, something they denied. The committee has the power to block LaSalle's nomination from coming to the Senate floor. Hochul, speaking earlier in the month, said she won't withdraw LaSalle's name and that she finds the expansion of the Senate Judiciary Committee unprecedented. She says LaSalle has an exceptional record. He'll be the person that'll bring a fractured court together. He'll be fair. He'll be just. And a review of his 5,000 cases will reveal that. So that's why the process will be, he'll go to the committee, even if it's stacked. Hochul, who is a supporter of abortion rights and who has had a good relationship with labor unions, says she wants the confirmation process to continue.
If the nomination does make it out of the Judiciary Committee and reach the floor, Hochul would need votes from Republicans for LaSalle to be confirmed. Senate Minority Leader Robert Ort says he's reached out to the governor to say that he and his GOP colleagues are willing to keep an open mind. He urged the governor to push back against what he calls the radical left of her party. But he says that Hochul has not responded. If she's not willing to show the courage to get up there and fight for her nominee, which may include working across the aisle, then I don't think that bodes well for a lot of other issues this session. A date for a committee hearing on LaSalle's nomination has not yet been set. In Albany, I'm Karen DeWitt. You're listening to Northern Light here on North Country Public Radio. It is 13 minutes past 8. Good morning. I'm Todd Moe. And I'm Monica Sandreski. Just ahead, astronomer Eileen O'Donohue joins us to talk about the winter constellations and four planets visible in the night sky. A conversation in just a few minutes here on Northern Light. music by the Wickmore Jazz Trio. Their music is part of our Underscore Project. You can listen to it anytime online. Visit us at ncpr.org slash underscore. Northern Light is supported by St. Lawrence Health, whose affiliation with Rochester Regional Health means more patient access to specialty care, stlawrencehealthsystem.org. And by Guideboat Realty, located in Saranac Lake, where health, history, and the arts meet in the Adirondacks. Your guide to Adirondack real estate, guideboatrealty.com. Twenty-five years ago, people across the North Country and much of Southern Ontario and Quebec were getting used to life without power after the massive ice storm of 1998 knocked out most of the region's power grid. A fortunate reality of life in 1998 was that most people owned radios powered by batteries. And that meant that NCPR played a pivotal role in connecting people with information and providing companionship during dark, cold winter nights. One of the people who was instrumental in that effort was our station manager, Mitch Tyke, who was a young reporter in what was then a two-person newsroom. Mitch spent the first eight nights of the ice storm sleeping on the floor of his office in Canton and much of the days on the air in the field. He joins us on Northern Light this morning to help us think back on that time. Thanks for being with us, Mitch. Hey, good morning, Monica. So why did you end up sleeping on the floor of your office? (laughs) Well, simply put, 
I lived in an apartment in Potsdam, and there was no power, there was no phone, there was no hot water, and there was no family here to worry about. So it really made sense to let the others at NCPR go home in the evenings. Uh, We got some foam soundproofing and put it down on the floor in my office as kind of an impromptu sleeping mat. I put my sleeping bag on top of it, and... Uh, the much younger me thought that was pretty comfortable. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> so so how did your role and NCPR's work evolve in those early days of the storm? Well, at the very beginning on that first day or day and a half, we were all engineers. We were all engaged in the effort to literally get back on the air. At the beginning, there was no power in our building. There was no power at the transmitters. We had no computers functioning to write or produce stories, no way to get the NPR shows that we would have put on the air if we had any way to get on the air in the first place. Um, So the first thing we did was try to secure a couple of small generators to get at least a few things up and running at 80 East Main. And when we did that, we had to be selective about what we could power, a few lights in the studio and in my office and a couple other offices. Um, We powered the control board and the audio equipment, a couple of space heaters and a couple of computers. Um, But within a couple of days, the power company, which in those days was Niagara Mohawk, uh, came to the rescue. And it resulted in the first real feature story I produced during the storm's aftermath. Well, and we actually have a clip from that story, which features a couple of familiar voices. Tell me your name and what what we're about to do. Well, my name is Bob Sauter. We're taking a giant step forward, Mitch. We're going from using two 4KW generators to a little larger one, which we'll be hearing from shortly. Follow me. We're in the building right now where it's about 32 degrees, and we're going downstairs. We could probably blow these candles out on the stairs yes. soon, too. Yeah. And the next sound you hear, which will sound like twin fighter bombers, is really our generator. All right. Let's go and listen to the other one. So make the contrast for us, Bob. What's the difference here? Well, those two together were 8KW. This one, get a little closer to it, but not too close. This is 375KW. This thing could run, well, a small missile testing ground, for example. This thing is about the size of a minivan. Yes, uh, and costs a lot more. Well, obviously, that was a lighter moment during the ice storm. It's so nice to hear both of you from 20 years ago. I, that, that warms my heart. Well, so obviously, that was a lighter moment. But, but there were some of the other, what were some of the other stories that NCPR covered? Well, Martha Foley was news director in those days, and she sent me as far as it was safe to go with many roads being impassable. It was not easy to get around, Um, but I made it out to emergency shelters and uh, the few businesses that were open and trying to serve some people during the storm. Uh, But everyone who could was gathering sound. 
I remember Ellen Rocco interviewing utility crews who had traveled to the North Country from all over the country. And it was during the ice storm that I did my one and only interview with then-Governor George Pataki. We're doing everything we can to uh, do more to help the shelters and to restore the power. And beginning tomorrow, we're going to have the ability to have uh, National Guard Humvees and National Guard four-wheel drive ambulances patrol uh, just go through some of the rural roads uh, looking to see if we can locate people who might be isolated and not have an access to a phone. Everything the state can do. Uh, this is the, the, the uh, largest response for a storm of this nature that the state has ever had. What's your sense of what the food situation is like for the five The food counties? situation now is fine. We have the ability to feed 60,000 people for 10 days from our Office of uh, Mental Health uh, warehouses that has been provided here. The question is distributing it, making sure that not just the shelters, but people who might be isolated in their homes uh, have access to that. You can hear some of the rough edits from how quickly we were working to get this information on the air. Um, Governor Pataki mentioned the guard troops a couple of days later. I took what was my first ever ride in a Humvee with some of those National Guard troops who were vi- uh, visiting some isolated homes on one of those missions. And what are some of the unique memories that you have of your storm experience? Uh, Well, it was definitely unique experiencing the storm as a reporter. Being a radio and sound person, a couple of the real memories are sounds. There's that sound that everyone who was around in those days remembers. Uh, The first night of the storm when branches and trees were cracking under the weight of the sometimes three or four inches of ice. And it sounded like rifle shots. Um, But then there were the next couple of nights when we were powered at NCPR by the little generators and I was sleeping on the floor of my office alone in the station with one safety light in the hallway and you'd hear the generator running out of fuel and I knew within a couple of seconds we would plunge into dark cold silence. Um, But the other abiding memory was how the ice storm brought NCPR and the North Country close. We did news breaks a few minutes before the top of every hour in which we shared what was really news, where you could get propane or a hot meal or other supplies. And we did these legendary call-in shows in the evenings to keep us all sane. Yes. Tell us about those call-in shows. You're sort of famous for them, Mitch. Yeah. Well, being that I was living in the station, I would join Ellen or Barb or someone else on the air, and, and we'd play some songs and have people call in to talk about how they were getting through the ordeal. We do tips for how to keep your pipes from freezing or ask people what they were reading or what games they were playing. Basically, we're just keeping each other company. And you also had a regular caller, though. (laughs) Yes. My mom became something of a North Country folk hero when she called from Maryland on that first night we were on the air. Basically, to check up on me, we put her on the air, and then she called every night after that to metaphorically or maybe literally tuck in the North Country. Do, Do you have a clip of tape from that time? Somewhere in my vast radio audio archives on a dusty cassette or reel-to-reel tape somewhere. But I can share a, a famous part of the NCPR ice storm experience that does not involve my mom. Uh, we ran impromptu poetry slams, including an ice storm limerick challenge. Hi, you're on the air. Hi, my name's Neil. Where are you calling from, Neil? Uh, I'm calling from Canton out on the Russell Road. Yeah. I've got a short little uh, limerick to share with you. Hey, all right. (laughs) It was the start of a promising new year 
when our life became frozen round here. But the biggest relief that thawed out our grief was when Quickie Mart sold us some beer. (laughs) (laughs) Midge, thank you so much for sharing these memories of the ice storm. It was a pleasure to have you on this morning. Uh, It was a delight to be with you. It was such an important time for all of us and really the best teamwork I can remember in three decades in radio. Beautiful. Thanks. Listening to Northern Light here on North Country Public Radio. I'm Todd Mo. And I'm Monica Sandreski. In just a minute, clear winter nights and mornings are ideal for astronomers. We'll find out what's up with Eileen O'Donohue. After that, stick around for Bird Note coming up after the show at 842. But first, Todd has a look at the weather for us. Weather Service says a mix of sun and clouds. In fact, that's what I can see here in Canton right now. Some blue sky, some clouds, highs in the 20s this afternoon. Nighttime lows uh, this evening dipping down into the single digits, mostly clear tonight. And then tomorrow, partly sunny, highs near 30. Because he's a mixed precipitation on Thursday and Friday with uh, maybe some rain, sleet, snow, highs in the upper 30s and low 40s. And uh, right now in uh, Canton, we have a mix of sun and clouds and 19 degrees. Eileen O'Donohue teaches physics and astronomy at St. Lawrence University, and she drops by once a month to tell us uh, about the night and morning skies. And uh, this time of year, Eileen, uh, I don't know about you, but I'm noticing uh, a little more daylight. It's it's happening at an alarming pace, actually. Um, So we've already got, we're gaining one and a half minutes of daylight per day. So, you know, I'm already gearing up to start my dark therapy. Um, (laughs) uh, And we were at our closest position to the sun on uh, January 4th, and we rip around the uh, edge of the sun. And I switched net mics there. We rip around when we're closest to the sun. And so we're going to be slowing down now until July. But we're just moving fast, and the daylight is changing fast, and there's all this stuff going on. Well, you sent me a list of what's going on uh, at, at sunset, and what? Venus, Saturn, Jupiter, and Mars? Yes. Actually, Uranus and Neptune are up there, too, but they're really hard to see. (laughs) Um, And uh, so, yeah, everybody, the only uh, planet in the morning sky is Mercury, and it's actually lost in the glare of dawn because it just passed between us and the sun, and so it's barely out of the line of sight with the sun. But, yes, uh, Venus is still low in the sky. Um, it's about 13 degrees above the horizon, a little more than the width of your fist above the horizon, right at sunset. It sets early, so it sets by 6.15, but it's really bright right at sunset, a little after sunset, and, you know, sunset is um, at uh, 5.44, so mm-hmm. it's, it's still a pretty early sunset. And I want to hear more about uh, this great square of Pegasus and... 
and like nearby, you're saying that we can see the Andromeda galaxy. Yes, the n- closest major galaxy to our own Milky Way is it's high in the southern sky early in the evening. And I actually made a chart that you can uh, you can use to find it. And there is a gigantic square in the sky called the Great Square of Pegasus. It's as big if you hold your hand out at arm's length and spread your fingers. That's about it's it's that big. And so it's a large square in the early evening it it's more like a diamond mm-hmm. in the sky and the top star of that diamond is called Alpharats, which is the brightest star in Andromeda. The great square is part of Pegasus, the winged horse on which Perseus is riding, carrying Medusa's head, you know, and it's this drama going on in the sky. And what Perseus is doing is trying to rescue Andromeda, who is chained to a rock, waiting for Cetus, the sea monster, to come gobble her up. So, but that's Andromeda provides a nice path to the galaxy. You start at Alpharats. Andromeda looks like a cornucopia in the sky. And right now, the cornucopia starting at Alpharats opens up to the north <coughs> or up in our sky. Mm-hmm. And you go from Alpharats to Mirok, two stars to Mirok, and then over one star to Mu, another star to Nu. Those are the Greek letters Mu and Nu. Mm-hmm. And then if you follow that path with your binoculars, when you get to new, you should be able to see the galaxy in your binoculars. Mm. And you can actually, if you know where to look, you can see it without binoculars. So once you see it in binoculars, you can try it without them. Now, so <coughs> we're, you're saying that uh, tonight, for example, around 7 o'clock, look to the south-southwest sky. Yep, yep. And you should see this great big diamond yeah. shape. Yes, yes. Maybe like if we found Jupiter, could that be sort of a, a, a sort of a sign yep, for us? Yep, the, it's yeah, okay. up and to the right of Jupiter. Uh-huh. And a nice thing about Jupiter right now is it's marking the position of the vernal equinox, which is where the sun will be on March 21st. And so Jupiter is about 90 degrees ahead of the sun. Who says there's no drama up in the I know. Everything is moving, you know. (laughs) And so from the left side of the great square or the top left edge as we're looking at the diamond, you follow that line and you find a star called Omega Piscium. (laughs) And it's also a, a marker for you to be able to find the vernal equinox right next to the ringlet of Pisces, which is actually a fish 